today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I'm assuming that everybody listening is intimately aware of the details, remembers the story of the Tim Bosma case. It's not that long ago. Seems like it's getting in the rearview mirror, but it's not that long ago, a couple of years. You'll remember it was the story of a young father from Ancaster who was selling his truck and two people came and went for a test drive with him and he never came back. We found out later through a very long, very difficult trial who they were. Their names were Dellen Millard and Mark Smith. It was a story that, um, it, it, it's, it's up there in terms of Hamilton, Ancaster, local people's memories of crimes that resonated for a lot of reasons. One for the absolutely hollowness of it. There was no reason for it. And two, because a, again, a young father with young kids was killed for no good reason. I mean, if you can ever make the case that there was a good reason in some cases, but not in this case, there was no good reason. Well, Dellen Millard, of course, uh, that was not his only crime. He was convicted also of killing others. And today he was convicted of killing his father, which I think puts a cap on everything, but we'll find that out in a minute. Uh, my next guest is the author of the book called Dark Ambition, The Shocking Crime of Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch. Her name is Anne Brocklehorse. She joins me now. Anne, thanks for doing this today. You're welcome. I think you're going to have to, though, change the name of your book to the shocking crimes, plural, of uh, Dellen Millard and Mark Smith. Who knew at the time? But, you, I mean, what a web they have weaved. It really is um, a very strange and horrific uh, crime story. That that Now... Are we done? Like, is this the last chapter? Is this the last time we hear Dellen Millard's name in any kind of real way? Well, there's a sentencing hearing November 16th. Fair enough. So that will be back in the news. But um, And he and um, Smitch, who, who was also convicted of the first, at the first two murder trials uh, for Tim Bosman and Laura Babcock, are um, both appealing both those verdicts, and I'm sure that Della Millard will appeal this latest verdict that he killed his father. So they will crop up, their names will crop up again, but I think we're done. There's no other crimes that we know of at this point that are tied to them? No, and um, that question was asked today after the judgment, and the police said they had looked at other suggested crimes and found nothing. This is a weird question to ask you, and I, I acknowledge that when I do this, because it's it's odd, I guess, to try and rank things like this in Canadian history, but th- th- his conviction today, and now with a third separate murder under his belt on, in his conviction tally, uh, this has to put him right up there into the rarest of categories of Canadian serial killers. I think it was an unusual case. I mean, there have been, and again, I, I do hate to talk of it in these terms because every murder is horrific in and of itself, but there have been killers who have had, who've killed more people, but there was something about these particular crimes that touched um, people especially and made them feel vulnerable the way it was. Tim Bosma had advertised his truck on Kijiji. Mm. 
Um, so there were, it was an, an a highly unusual crime, and I think it spoke to people in in certain ways. Well, it does seem that certain certain crimes do resonate with us more than others, for sure. And I, you know, it's a name that I hate to bring up, even because people. Uh, remember it so well, so vividly. But I mean, the Bernardo case was one that resonated in a unique way. I, I, I'm not sure this one is at that level exactly, but it's it's getting up there. It's one of those things that, and I think, it, and it's because in large way, the victims were really, in this case, innocent. They, I mean, there was, they weren't doing something that was stupid that was putting them in danger. They were truly innocent victims. Yes. There's that, and I, I don't want to get into a whole victim-blaming discussion, but let me just say one other thing about the Bernardo case that I think truly resonates and that and is very different from the Millard case. I think there's really a sense in the Bernardo case that justice was not done, True. that Carla Homolka escaped justice, and I'm always amazed. I wasn't living in Ontario at the time of that trial. I'm always amazed at how it so deeply affected the psyche of Ontarians. In the case of um, Tim Bosma and Laura Babcock and Wayne Millard, that hasn't happened. I think that justice was done. So the crimes were horrific, but at least we can take some comfort in knowing that the murderers were convicted. You're absolutely right. And also, I mean, the the Bosma one, there was some of that. When we talk about the fear that people may have had because of the randomness of it with someone who was just selling a truck. But you're right, not exactly to the same level. Nonetheless, uh, truly horrendous. And some of the things about this, when when you hear what happened with his father, that while his father was asleep, he shot him in the left eye to kill him. It, it, it's all, I don't even know what words to use. It's so cold that it's, it's not human. It's a very strange case. Um, what happened with Wayne Millard? It really is bizarre. Um, yeah, there's a, I mean, to me, there's no doubt in my mind that he killed his father, but as why, as to why he would shoot his sleeping father in the eye, I, I, find that really peculiar. Now, this happened in 2012 that he killed his father. It was ruled a suicide initially by police. He killed Tim Bosma roughly six months later. Um, Is it a reasonable assumption to believe that Tim Bosma would be alive today then if the police had actually ruled this as not a suicide back then? Toronto police certainly have a lot of questions to answer um, about both the, the Wayne Millard case and the Laura Babcock case. I mean, if we start with Laura Babcock, who was killed a few months before Wayne Millard, the last eight phone calls she made were to Dellen Millard. Those were the last phone calls on her phone bill. And for some reason, Toronto police never contacted Dellen Millard. So, th- I mean, that's is just inexplicable. They had a missing woman. They had a case on it. They never contacted the the last person to be in phone contact with her. Then you have the Wayne Millard case. When you saw the pictures taken at the crime scene of, of the body, it was just beyond bizarre that anyone would shoot themselves in the position that Wayne Millard was in. 
And yet, you know, they almost within two or three days declared this was suicide and closed the case. Um, a, a homicide detective was called to go to the scene. He never went. I don't know if it's the same detective, but he, there was a detective who was supposed to go to the autopsy, never went. The coroner told the court that to him, the death was 60 to 70 percent suicide, 30 to 40 percent suspicious. And yet after the autopsy and all the autopsy concluded was that Wayne Millard was killed to a shot through the brain, um, which wasn't surprising, and that he had no gunshot residue on his hands, which was surprising, even though the coroner had these 30 to 40 percent suspicions, the case was just closed. They said, okay, release the crime scene, didn't even bother to take the bedding. I mean, that part and the part that you just mentioned, and you know this way better than anybody listening knows this story. Uh, I'm no expert on crime. But I do know that when you've had a bullet pass through your eye hole and blow your brain out, you don't then go to the bathroom and clean your hands to get rid of gunshot residue. If there's no residue on your hands, something's wrong. Yes and no. I mean, gunshot residue is a strange thing, but it's certainly a red flag. And with all the other things, like that this was an illegal handgun. That's the other thing. They could have run a check on the handgun at that time. They never did. When they did, after Tim Bosma's murder, they found out instantly that Dylan Millard, that Dylan Millard should have never had that handgun. That handgun should have never been in the house. So there were just so many avenues missed in that investigation. There were reports that today, and I, I and I wish I could stay on a lot of these topics, these areas longer. We we sadly don't have enough time. But there were reports today in court that Dellen Millard was crying when the sentencing or when the uh, judgment was read. I don't recall ever that being the case in any of the other ones. Uh, any idea in your mind why this particular case would elicit that kind of response? Okay, I've got to say that I personally did not see Della Millard cry, and I asked a lot of other people who had the same reaction as I did that they did not see him cry. What I saw was when he realized, and it was around three-quarters of the way into the judge reading out her judgment, which lasted almost two hours, when he realized, oops, this isn't going my way, he looked angry to me and really like he didn't believe this was happening. I think he expected to win this case. So I didn't see any tears. Sometimes you have a different angle, but, you know. It was not I, an obvious emotional outpouring of sympathy is what no, you're saying. No. If I, someone I, saw I, something. Like that. All right. Uh, now, the Crown says that when it comes to sentencing, it is going to be seeking an extra 25 years of parole ineligibility for this because he's already got a life, he's already got two life sentences, so they want to extend his time. Is that, an, is that necessary? Because it doesn't seem like once you've got three separate murder convictions from three separate occasions that your chances of ever getting out again are going to be very good. It's hard to say. I, I mean, on the one hand, you... You have to remember that in 40 years from now or 40-odd years from now, when Dellen Millard does go to apply for parole, there are not going to be that many people around who remember this case. Um, well, Charlene Bosma will still be around. Her daughter will still be around. But, you know, the public, of, of course, 
Actually, let me make that perfectly clear. The people who are involved with this case and have been deeply affected by it will always remember it. Of course. It's just the public um, people who, who, who saw it play out in the headlines won't remember it and then you know parole boards can do weird things so (laughs) that's true i think there are justifiable reasons to ask for that uh her name is ann brocklehurst uh she has written del uh, dark ambition the shocking crime of Dellen millard and mark smith still available i assume i hope yes it is and the paperback edition um with new um information on the laura babcock and wayne millard trials will come out next year And I really appreciate you taking time today. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome. Again, the book is Dark Ambition, The Shocking Crime of Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you win Jeopardy, it's kind of like, it's it's like being in Mensa, only way cooler. You can tell her, I won Jeopardy. I was on Jeopardy and I won. No hints, no multiple choice. You got to know your stuff and it's obscure a lot of the time and it's hard. It's really hard to get on. I know that. Well, my next guest is a Burlington guy who just was on Jeopardy. And by the way, the other reason people want to be on Jeopardy these days, Alex Trebek is sporting a really spot on white beard these days. He's rocking the beard, but that's secondary. Anyway, my next guest was just on Jeopardy, Burlington guy. Uh, His name is Andrew Lundy. He joins me now. Andrew, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you are a journalist, so I want to get this out of the way first. Let's deal with the lead first of all. You didn't win. You didn't lose. You came second. You okay with that? Oh, I'm totally okay with that. I mean, uh, kind of what you hinted at earlier, just getting on the show was the prize. I mean, I've been trying for you know almost 10 years to get on. It's been a lifelong dream, one of those bucket list items. And you know, just getting on the show was... I'm still kind of stunned. Uh, so winning anything would have been gravy. And, uh, you know, coming in second, it's $2,000. So once the IRS gets its cut, it's 1400 <laughs> But it's U.S. dollars, so not so bad. So I'm, it's 12000 Totally happy, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, and you're, by the way, when I said you're a journalist, you're the digital vice president with the Canadian press. So you know stuff. You, you're, you're around. You know stuff. You're good at, at trivia, right? This is, this is yeah. something you've been able to do. Yeah, I think, you know, being a journalist does help. There's a few professions that are kind of made for Jeopardy, and I think this is one of them where current events and knowing a lot about or knowing a little about a lot of stuff kind of benefits you. So, yeah, I think that's uh, that played a factor. And that means, if I'm guessing right, that there have been people around you for many, many years who have said, Andrew, you got to go on Jeopardy one of these days. you got to go on Jeopardy. You, you've heard that before, I'm sure. I have. It's probably started way back when Trivial Pursuit came out. I've always been a bit of a trivia nerd. Um, and then you don't make any money on that. But then when Jeopardy came on, and I was always watching it anyway. I was always been a kind of a game show fan. So then there was the opportunity. But, you know, in the early days, there was no way to apply except to actually, you know, go down to L.A. And I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> That's true. So how do you get on to Jeopardy? Um, it's sort of a three-step process. You know, the first one is you write an online test. So, you, you know, you go to the website, Jeopardy.com, and you basically sign up. And then they give you an email to say, you know, the next contestant test is whatever date you sign up for it. You know, so that night, you know, you go online and the test comes up. It takes uh, about, I don't know, five, ten minutes. Um, you have 50 questions. And, and it's about, really hard. Those, I mean, that's even harder than the game, right? Some of the, que- the questions themselves are decently hard. There's none of them that are, like, harder than the $2,000 questions, but they're rapid fire, and you have no idea what the next subject is, and it's 15 seconds to answer. you got to type your answer in. So it's kind of a pressure cooker, and you have no idea how you did at the end because you don't get scored. You just don't know. 
So when this is all done, then if you don't know, you're just in a vacuum. You have no idea if they're going to call you or not call you or anything. Yep. Yeah, you haven't. You know, you can. Some people have started recording their own answers and then going back and checking to see how they scored. And I started doing that, and I kind of knew I was getting in the low to mid forties out of fifty. So I'm thinking that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, uh, but I had done that for ten years and never gotten the call because what I think happens is uh, you know, thousands of people score that high, and they only take. Uh, about 400 or 300 people, or sorry, sorry, 3,000 out of the 80,000 that actually take the test get the call for the next stage, which is the audition. And I really think it's a bit of a lottery. Once you pass that minimum threshold, your name goes into a giant hat and somebody pulls out your name every so often. So when you got that call then to say, hey, you're up for the second round. Yeah. What, I, I mean, are you then confident that you're going to be on the show or is it no. still, oh, no way? Yeah, it's still a, it's still a long, long shot. I was floored when I got the, the it came, came as an email actually that, hey, you, we've been, you've been selected to take the, uh, the audition, you know, in a couple of months. And that came in the fall of 2017. And how does that work? So um, you sort of pick your city, the closest city to you where you want to go. And uh, usually they're U.S., but this time they had a Toronto city. And I'm from Burlington, and I work here in Toronto, so it was easy. I went down to the Royal York, and there was a morning session and an afternoon session with about 20 people in each. I was in the morning session, and you go in, and it's surreal. Like the contestant coordinators for the show are there, and it's super high energy, and it's super kind of compressed in time. And you, you go in, you get your picture taken, they kind of give you the you know, the rules, and then you write another 50-question test. This is handwritten now. You have eight seconds to answer those. But those are easy questions. They really okay. are easy. All right. And I think what they're doing is trying to make sure you didn't cheat on the online test. Though I don't know why anybody would cheat, because once you get on a show and if you don't know your stuff, you're going to look like an idiot. But exactly. I, I think they do it, right? And then, uh, and then you, you play a couple of mock games, which I think is kind of a test to see how you're going to be on TV, you know, how you use the buzzer. And, and the, the buzzer you're using is, is the exact same one that you use on the show. And then you talk to the contestant coordinators, ask you questions. You, you know, I think they're trying to see how TV worthy you actually are, because it is, after all, a, you know, an entertainment show. Of course. And I understand you had a unique, though, audition in Toronto. Well, yeah. Um, after the uh, written test, there's usually a break while they score everybody, and they tell you to, you know, just relax for a few minutes. And uh, I'm sitting at the back of the room, and the doors open up, and in walks Alex Trebek, which is like, it's like Jesus walks in, and everybody stops, and there's this <laughs> hush. People can't believe it. and It's a uh, look-alike. It's a look-alike. Like, seriously, right? Is this Halloween or, you know? So uh, <laughs> he walks in, and he held court with us for about a half an hour. Like, he literally spent a long time, and we got to ask him all these questions, and he gave us some tips. Um, Why really, was he there? Well, what it turned out that he was getting the Order of Canada in a couple of days in Ottawa. So, obviously, with the contestant search on that time, they, the, you know, the... The Jeopardy crew, you know, stitched the the two events together and said, "Alex, nice. you can buy the contestant thing, say hi to them, and then you can head off to Ottawa." So yeah, it was it was amazing. Like just really, you know, lucky that we got that because most people don't get to see him until if they get on the show until the actual show airs. Uh, so you get there, Andrew. You're finally on the set, and I'll tell you what my initial thought would be, and maybe this is a difference between me and you and other people. My first thought would be all right, don't make a fool of yourself here by completely screwing this up in front of everybody. A thought ever cross your mind? 
that was my constant thought. That was my first thought <laughs> when I got the nod, and that blasted me all through the show. I, my, my, my real, I, as I said to you, I was just happy to be on the show. But the one thing that would have made it bad, the one thing I would have been embarrassed is if I'd really screwed up, you know, you know gotten minus 4,000 <laughs> and not been invited back and not been able to ring in or something. That would have been embarrassing. But I was pretty confident that as long as I sort of kept my cool that at least I would not embarrass myself. Not pull the Cliff Clavin. Cliff Clavin. I use actually Wolf Blitzer. Who was Wolf on Blitzer, yes. Here's a guy who's a journalist. He's my profession, famous guy, and he ended up with minus 4,600. It was just like... And he probably and he got almost every question wrong. Not yeah. only did he not get way in in the negative, but he was he, yeah, it was ugly. That was yeah. ugly. And I've talked to Pete Dykowski, former Ticat, who has been on yes. Jeopardy, and he, right. you know, he he said the same thing. He's used to playing in front of big crowds, and mm-hmm. he was nervous. So I can't imagine. I mean, it's just it's it, all of a sudden you get there and it's real, and the opportunity to look like a buffoon, quite frankly, <laughs> is very high if you. And, and I mean, I don't even know, Andrew, what the question would be that you would live in fear of, but like one that you should absolutely know that you somehow get wrong and then have to live with that for in front of your friends for the rest of forever. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was one question on the show. Um, the I one, is this the Toronto one? Yeah, the Toronto one. And, now you and didn't... I, knew, I knew the question, obviously, but I, as soon as I read the question, and we had just finished talking about Toronto and the CN Tower, I read the question, which is all about Toronto and the CN Tower, and I thought... Am I hallucinating? Like, I hadn't had a lot of sleep the night before, and am I imagining that this is like a repeat of my chat with Alex? And then I realized, I better answer this, or it'll be like a landmark, funny, embarrassing thing. And Riley, the woman next to me, rang in first, and I was saying to myself, I hope she gets it wrong. It was a pretty easy question. Yeah, here's the question. I actually wrote it down. Construction of the CN Tower began in February... 1,815 feet, and three years later, the tower opened to the public in this city. Yeah. Um, yeah, that would have been, exactly, that would have been the one that if you had buzzed in and got that one wrong, you may yeah. not have been able to go back to work. No, that's true. I would have stayed down in L.A. and worked uh, <laughs> as a dishwasher somewhere, <laughs> for sure. Well, yeah. okay, so walk me through this, though, because Jeopardy, unlike a lot of TV game shows, there's a lot of TV game shows where you have one task. You're sitting there, and you either have to answer a question or you have to do something you have the clicker that is, I understand, a challenging thing to time properly to work. You've got to keep track of your scores. You've got your money. You've got to keep track of the questions that are being asked. How difficult is it to balance everything? Well, you know, it's, it's the reason that I wasn't nervous. I, I had so much to focus on, so many different things to think about, that thinking about how what was on the line or thinking that was a studio audience and a TV audience didn't really come to me it, it wasn't it wasn't what i was thinking about so in a way all the stuff you have to you have to concentrate on is a good thing and so yeah there's you have to know which monitors to look at you have to monitor what your score is you have to read the questions faster than alex is speaking them you have to look at how your opponents are answering um you know and when you're betting you know you get a daily double you got to figure out the math and what makes sense to bet um, so all those things are happening. And then obviously with the clicker, the timing of the clicker and which do I use my thumb, do I use my forefinger, all that's sort of happening in like a light speed. And How difficult is that? How tricky is the clicker? Because every half the time people on there look like they're about to throw it through the wall because yeah. they can't get it to work. How tricky is it? It's, it's tricky because it's all about timing. Um, you know, you've got a sort of time between Alex stopping reading like the last syllable of the question he utters and then when the lights go on, there's a person that actually presses a button that makes the lights go on that says you can click now. So somewhere in between that little twilight zone there, you've got to start your pressing of your thumb so you hope that by the time the lights go on, it 
syncs up perfectly with you clicking. So that's why you see people clicking a lot. If you don't click in the first time, maybe the next time will be the right time for it. Um, and it can be frustrating because, you know, I said most people um, who make it to that part of the show know the answers to most of the questions. You know, we're all pretty savvy with, you know, with trivia and, and we get it. So it's the person that rings in first most of the time gets the right answer, gets the money. Um, and, and Kyle, the champion who, who beat me, was in the zone, especially in the second round. I, I, I could just feel it. Every time I tried to ring in, he was there first. So you get into a rhythm. A total rhythm. I got into it in the first round for a little bit. They had to stop the show from a technical thing and kind of took me out of the rhythm. But not to say that I would have made much of a difference because Kyle sure had the rhythm too. But um, it's huge. The buzzer is the difference maker in the show because most of the contestants are all fairly even. There's some super geniuses, but everybody's pretty solid. Now, you mentioned the daily doubles. We only have a minute or so left here. I understand you got two daily doubles, right? I did. One that you got right, one that you got wrong. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. Yep. <laughs> but when yeah. you go into, have you pre-planned before you start the show what I'm going to do if I get a daily double, or are you making it up on the fly as far yeah. as your strategy? Yeah, you have to make it up on the fly. You have to look at the scores, you know, where you are in the game, what the category is. You know, if it was some category that I absolutely, you know, knew down pat, maybe I would have bet it all. Um, you know, and in the first round, I bet as much as I could because I got it fairly early, and it was a it was kind of a wheelhouse category for me. I was good at that one. Um, the second one, I I considered betting it all um, because it was another category I thought I was good at, and I mean, in a way, I'm thankful I didn't bet it all. But you you have to make the game time decision. You know, the second one I was three thousand behind the leader, and I bet three thousand just so I could tie him, kind of catch up to him, um, and that's the one I got wrong. Well, we've got to go, but I will give you your good double jeopardy one here, so people can hear because this this was a tough one. I thought this was a tough one. Uh, developed by King Norodom, the, this capital city lies at the confluence of the Mekong, Basak, and Tonle Sap rivers. Yeah, what is Phnom Penh? Phnom Penh. Uh, capital of Cambodia. People listening at home, how many of you, hands up, how many of you would have got that one right? There's not many hands up right now, Andrew, I'm telling you. That's a, <laughs> that is a tough question. That is that is more difficult than your average question, I would think. Hey, listen, it is a lot of fun. It's excellent that you got to do this. Uh, I am envious <laughs> until I get on there and am the guy that makes a complete fool of myself. But in the meantime, the, the theory of the idea, I'm very envious that you got to do it. But uh, yeah. I appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk about it with us today. Thanks. I had a lot of fun talking to you. That is Andrew Lundy. You can uh, you can go online. Thespec.com has a story still up. You can read about him, see his picture there. You can go online. It's amazing how many Jeopardy websites there are that will show his questions, everything. Like, people break this stuff down. It's big-time, serious statistics keeping online for Jeopardy fans. You can find all of it. Andrew Lundy. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 30 years ago today... Ben Johnson won the gold medal in the 100 meters at the Olympics before being disqualified. 48 hours from now will be the anniversary, the 30th anniversary of his drug test for stanozolol coming back as a fail. But this is the anniversary, the 30th anniversary, believe it or not, I'm stunned by that. The 30th anniversary of his actually running the race and beating Carl Lewis and everybody in Canada loving it because we all hate Carl Lewis. We bring in Don Robertson, owner, operator of the Dundas Real McCoys of ComChoice Realty, regular Monday guest here. Uh, I bet you watched that race. I did. I was owning and operating uh, Duck Sports Bar in the Collins Hotel in Dundas, and the place was jammed. I have no doubt. I think it was like 10, 10, 10 11 o'clock at night. It was... I think on a Saturday night, Friday or Saturday night. Yeah. 
I'll tell you, as a sports bar, of course, it was great. No big screens. You know, we were happy if we had 30-inch old televisions, but uh, the the uh, that was a pretty exciting less than nine seconds. Back and, in uh, 1988, so this was before. Fastest man in the world. This was just after the Gretzky to Lemieux Canada Cup, so we're in the yep. wake of that one. Yep. Uh, about a year later, but it's before Sidney Crosby. It's before in, in the in the Olympics. It's before both Blue Jay World Series. Sidney Crosby was in diapers. It, this was this was as big a moment as I had seen in my lifetime up to that point. It was a pretty huge sporting moment for Canada. Um, I'm not sure it was bigger than. The Summit Series in 72. No, no, I wouldn't think so. But from an individual basis, and I think as a country, we took it personally. We're the country that says, please and thank you, no take my chair. Well, it's because we hated Carl Lewis so much. Carl Lewis we was needed a to have doofus. A, you need to have a villain to have a real hero story, and we had a villain. And you hated Carl Lewis because he, was, he came across as arrogant and... Pious he was just juiced up. The whole crew was juiced up. It was just a matter of who could hide it well enough. There's a there's Jamie a, Astafan, I think that was his name, probably cost us the well, gold medal because he didn't cover it. There was a uh, a book that came out, and years ago I had the author uh, on the show called The Dirtiest Race in History, which was all about this. There were eight guys that lined up for that race. Two of them finished their careers with no hint of drugs or steroids or anything on them. Two of them. And all the rest, six of the others were all at one time or another in their careers caught up or tainted or talked about. Including Carl Lewis. All of them. Who walked around after the event saying, with white gloves on, saying, see, cheaters, it's the only reason I didn't win. Well, the story was that Carl Lewis had failed tests coming into those Olympics, but the American Olympic Committee had covered those up. That was the, that was the story at the time. And so. That's why I wasn't blaming Ben. Well, better, better doctors. You know what though? Uh, the one thing that I think that that did as well as really, um, cut the heart out of a lot of Canadian sports fans, it really destroyed track and field as an Olympic sport in Canada. It re- uh, not as an Olympic sport, as a sport that fans would be interested in. We, for a while there with Ben Johnson and Bruni Sir, well not Bruni Sir, he came later, Desai Williams and Angela Isienko and all these, it was track and field was enormous. And that Ben Johnson was at the very top of that. Donovan Bailey came along later. I'm convinced to this day that Donovan Bailey never got the acclaim in this country. He got a lot of acclaim, but he never got close to the acclaim or the sponsorships or anything else that he would have because every, not been uh, exposed because everybody just kept waiting for the shoe to drop that would find Donovan Bailey. Because we're pessimists. Had tested right? positive. Well, after going through the the the, uh, the inquest and everything else, the Dubbin inquiry and everything else, we had every reason to believe. Now, Donovan Bailey, best of my knowledge, there was never a hint of steroids around him at all. I've no. never heard of anybody saying or suggesting in any way that Donovan Bailey was anything but perfectly clean. But for the probably for his whole career, people were waiting yeah, for that test to come he's back. He's walking in that shadow. Jamie was it Jamie Astafan? That's the, that was one of them. Yeah. And uh, well, Charlie, Charlie Francis. Charlie Francis. Yep. 
And I don't know which one was the doctor. And I'm, I'm, Astafan was the doctor. Francis was the trainer. I, I'm certainly, when I say it was his fault, I put that tongue in cheek. But yeah. um, Which cheek? Yeah, good point. The one with the needle went, I guess. Yeah. Um, one where you don't want a tongue. <laughs> wow. It's hard to believe you go lower than me. It never happens. In any event, I think, you know, it just, it's, uh, it, it was, it was a dirty sport, I think, based on the book. And you're right. I think poor Donovan Bailey walked in that shadow, people waiting for the other shoe to drop. Unfair. Sure it was. If Donovan Bailey had been without Ben Johnson, as, as you described with that shadow hanging over him, I am convinced Donovan Bailey, he already was a very big star. There's no question about it. But He's still I think a pretty big star. He would have been... I'm convinced twice the star he was in this country. I don't think this is how good my memory is. Uh, I don't think the sport rose to the height it was in '88 um, until the last four or five years when the big Jamaican, what the heck's his name? He runs both. Usain Bolt. Bolt, yeah, good name. But even Usain Bolt, you know what is missing? And again, I go back to my point. Who's the villain? Usain Bolt is the good guy. There's no question. Everybody likes Usain Bolt. To really have great drama, you have to have a good yep. guy and a bad guy, a good a hero and a villain. There's no villain. I mean, who who was in in the last Olympics? Who came second to Usain Bolt? Andre de Grasse, the, the Canadian kid from guy. Toronto. And everybody likes Andre de Grasse. They're running down the They're straightaway, smiling, smiling and laughing. Yeah. There's no there's no animosity. There's no villain here. Grasse should have tripped them. Well, then he would have been the villain and the winner. The, the, he, well, he probably would have been disqualified. Yeah, they but, frown on that. Oh, yeah, they do. It's not full contact yet. Uh, but no, if, if Usain Bolt could have had a bad guy, pick your country, doesn't matter. A Russian, a China, right. uh, from China, an American, a Canadian, anybody. Edmund, uh, McMahon uh, made that famous. In wrestling. With Hulk Hogan. Yeah. There was always a bad guy. But if you could have found a villain for Usain Bolt to race against. Yeah. And I don't know how That's much more big, exciting. I don't know how much bigger Usain Bolt could have got, but I guarantee you ratings and stuff go up if there's someone that you're not only rooting for, but you have a rooting interest for a specific reason, not just because you like watching them run. That's I mean, look, there was a, a used to be a show that launched. You know now that the uh, the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, has a reality show called The Ultimate Fighter, sure, and yeah. what they do. It's most people have probably seen it, and it is a. Uh, it, it, they put all these contestants, it's a elimination tournament, but they have all the people living in one house and the whole point behind it, there was a show that led to this called the contender that Sylvester Stallone and Sugar Ray Leonard had put together. It was a boxing thing, same concept. And you didn't know any of the contestants. These were not high end super boxing prospects, but when you would get to know these guys. So you watch them on TV and you got to learn a little bit about them and who has kids and who has a wife and who's a jerk and all the rest. Suddenly, even though these guys may not be good boxers at all, you have a serious rooting interest in who's fighting in that particular fight on that particular day, even though most boxing aficionados couldn't tell you who these guys were at all. That's what drives stuff. That's what makes Survivor work as a TV show still after all these years. There's villains. And there's heroes, and you can cheer for somebody and feel something for somebody. I watched some stuff on the weekend. I saw a guy go from villain to hero. And uh, a lot of people seem to be interested. Who's that? Tiger Woods. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, sure. From hero to villain to hero again. I'll tell you, with Tiger Woods, 
the first time I ever saw him play live was when Mackenzie Hughes, who you know well, Dundas golfer, PGA golfer, qualified as an amateur for the U.S. US Open Open, that was in Philadelphia, the Marion course, and I went down to cover that, and Tiger Woods was playing in that shortly after the whole thing exploded. And I got to tell you, it was was shocking because Tiger Woods to that point had been revered. Not necessarily by the other players, they, but by the fans, Tiger Woods was a golfing god. And at this tournament, Tiger Woods was getting cheap shot comments from the gallery. People were taking shots at him verbally. And you, you would have never heard this in a million years. But he became, you're right, he became that bad guy. And there's nothing we like more than a... It's hard to be... Resurrection or revival story than It's than hard this. to be the good guy, then the bad guy, then the good guy again all in one character. But I yeah. can tell you, I've watched him this year and a little bit last year. This year, he's far more humble. He's either his people, the Nike people, whoever handled Tiger Woods, and I suspect he's probably smart enough to figure this out himself. During the remake, you better be grateful for your greatness, and he seems to be. You know, he's, but you know he what smiles the, at the fans. There's also and, humility. When you've been beaten down... Like yeah. that, of your own volition. He did it to himself. Yeah, but yeah. when you've been beaten down, you're going to have some humility, I would think. I would think. Well, you'd, you'd have to. I mean, I don't care how big your ego is. I mean, it took a. He, he got the snot kicked out of him in the media, and it was all self inflicted. And in the public. But it doesn't at- matter how, it still happened, and he wore it, and he took it, and. Got browbeat, and he's come back a different guy. Boy, did you see the crowds on 18? Did you watch it? I, I watched the end of it. I watched the last it four or five unbelievable. holes. Unbelievable! It was something. It really was. And and I'm I'm really going to be interested because I do believe the ratings will be through the roof. The TV ratings. Oh, for sure. I think they'll be through the roof. And what I don't know though is. There's no question Tiger Woods is great for golf as far as driving ratings, driving tickets, driving everything else. There's absolutely no question. We've got tons of proof of that, tons of proof. But I still heard a lot of people today who are still not back on the Tiger bandwagon, who are still see him as the villain. That's okay. And that's fine. And in fact, I think if you're golf, you like that even better. I don't care if you love the guy or if you hate the guy, but if you feel something about yeah. the guy, you will tune in and watch. See, the guys that hate him, the fans that hate him, and the fans that love him are all going to watch. That's right. Somebody's going to watch and hope he fails. Some is going to, some are going to watch and cheer that he wins again. And the guys on the border were all happy that he won again. It's apathy that's Johnny, the worst thing. Johnny Miller must have said three or four times, this is good for golf. At one point he said, this is great for golf. And what Tiger Woods does for golf is what Bobby Hull did in 1972 or three when he signed for the WHA. Yeah. And I think I've said before, I watched a short film where Stan Makita, uh, who was his teammate in Chicago that he abandoned, said, I used to get up every morning and bow in the direction I think Bobby Hull is because he made all of us so much money. And Tiger Woods has done the exact same Tiger thing. Tiger Woods does the same thing. And if he gets a reboot on this thing and the crowds go nuts and the sponsorship goes crazy and the ratings get higher and there's going to be nothing but a – well, um, I forget who tweeted it out today and I'm not 
great on Twitter, but I retweeted it. One of the PGA players said, this is great for golf. You saw walking up the 18th fairway, and I was on with Bill Kelly earlier today. I was talking about this, and also I'll repeat myself if someone was listening. Sorry. Um, but when you saw him walk up the 18th fairway with Rory McIlroy, and the two of them were having a, a chuckle. Now, by this point, McIlroy had fallen apart, and he was out of, the, out of contention. He was playing like you do. <laughs> Maybe worse, uh, which is saying something. But the fact is, 10 years ago, when Tiger Woods was at the apex of his dominance in golf, it didn't matter if the guy you're playing with had fallen apart or whatever else. If he's walking up the 18th with a chance to win, he is scowling. He is marching ahead of the guy. He is, this is not just about winning tournaments. This is about crushing the field. It is. He was a guy who was there with one, pur- one purpose only, Don, and that was to crush everybody. Again, Johnny Miller, and I'm not the biggest Johnny Miller fan in the world. Tiger, Tiger was lining up a putt, and it would have given him a six-stroke lead. And whoever his sidekick is saying, he really doesn't need it. Johnny Miller says he still wants to win by 50. Right. But That's the difference the is, is the difference is how he's getting there now. It's the humility. You, you. He now can actually be human with some of the other guys on the tour. Yeah. I remember back in those days, there was one guy, and it was um, what's his name? Who's uh, he went to Stanford with? Who's uh, who's now a commentator? Who's uh, um, ah, I'll think of his name in a minute. It is. It is. He's still not the. Um, Tiger Woods is still not probably the warmest, friendliest, cuddliest guy. But with what happened to him, I find it hard to believe that he has not had a little humility and a little milk of human kindness beaten into him among the other guys. Because now he walks... Even, even his gal scooter don't give him a little smooch. Yeah, but that, uh, see, that was a weird one. That was a weird one. See, And this, is, this to me was a reminder. We got to go to break. This to me was a reminder of Tiger's unsavory past because this woman runs out to give him a smooch after he finishes. And my question is, who's that? And I thought, wait, Lindsey Vaughn was his girlfriend. Oh no, that was like two months or three months ago. He's now got a new love of his life that's been there with him for like seven minutes. Uh, That to me was, if I'm him, I'm telling her, can you wait in the clubhouse just for perception purposes because nobody has seen you before and this is going to look wrong. Or in case she's looking for new leads. Well, uh, that 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 to me was not a good move by him. I heard it broadcast today that they've, they've been in a quasi-relationship for over a year now. Well. And if that's the case. All right. And he's getting some stability. I mean, she didn't just jump out of the crowd and scoot over there. Like it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a bunch of waitresses from diners that were lining up. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's the manager of a restaurant, I heard it this Uh-oh. Thing. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I mentioned off the top that uh, Rick Zamperin was here late, late, late Saturday night to cover the Cat game to do the fifth quarter afterwards, and the phone lines were lighting up afterwards because the head coach of the Hamilton Cats, June Jones, when he had a chance to really put his foot on the throat of the BC Lions and kick a 40-something yard field goal near the end of the game that would have made it a two-score game and essentially guaranteed Hamilton a win. Although there was some risk involved because you could miss and their kick returner is very good and could have run it back, 
but he chose not to. He chose to punt it into the end zone to get a point to build an eight-point lead and basically at least guarantee himself a tie. And what stood out to me is the axiom that you hear from people all the time, especially coaches, that you don't play for a tie. Why not? (laughs) Because you want to win. Well, I, I understand that. Sorry, let me rephrase the question. I know you want to win. But the, a lot of the criticism to him is that, well, what's the worst case scenario then? You've got a tie. If you, It seems to me there will be some people who will say this was a wise move because the worst thing that could happen is that you end up tied and you keep playing. The best case, I suppose, we can see what the best case was. But wh- why would you not? I, gu- I guess it all comes down to well, whether you're conservative or aggressive by nature. Well, you should be aggressive. I mean, they should have tried to kick the field goal. And uh, if you have enough confidence in your defense and special teams, then you should cook the field goal. And if you don't, you better get better special teams. The other thing, though, is um, if you miss the field goal, then then the other guys go down and score a touchdown. So then the heat's on the other coach. Does he go for two points to win, or does he kick the single point. And funny this, because I agree with you that you should have kicked the field goal, but yes, it comes back to, but if you'd never play for a tie, would BC then, if they had gone down and scored six on a touchdown, would they have gone for two points and taken that risk? I guarantee you they would have kicked the extra point and gone for the tie. I agree. So why, so you do play for a tie then? I guess I do. (laughs) No, but I, I... it was. It's an interesting one to me. In if, the over- if you were sure, if you were confident, it, and first of all, a lot of things come into factors. Uh, where you are in the standings. I mean, if you need that win to get in the playoffs, obviously go for two points. It's the coach's job to know all those factors and not be sitting in slapping back a bunch of tea in the coach's room afterwards going, holy cow, we should have thought of that earlier. I know late in the season, we know if we need three points. In our league, you get three points for a win and two for an overtime win and one for a, if you lose in overtime or a shootout. Um, you got to know how many points you need for your positioning and the standing. So you got to know that that's going to factor into it whether – the Lions absolutely had to have the victory or let's get a tie and hope we can win it in overtime. All those things matter. They didn't really matter to the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Well, they, they're not in quite the desperate spot, but they want to get first place because they want the bye, they want the home game. They well, a- Absolutely, but I mean, you know, based on last year, now they're sitting there going, so we got to try and get in first place. Of course they want to get in first place. And, and I think admittedly, and I don't know if June Jones has admitted or not, he'd probably like a redo. He's not going to get it. No. But he'd probably like it. I go back to my question, though, because I think it's a it's an interesting one. When you get to overtime, uh, B, uh, Hamilton goes first. Hamilton kicks a field goal. BC gets the ball. They're stopped. It's now third and whatever. Uh, they decide to kick a field goal as well, or vice versa. I can't remember now. I've lost track entirely. But the, whoever went second kicks a field goal. Nobody complains that they didn't go for third and four or whatever, that in that case, you say, well, yeah, you play for the tie. It's, it, the issue is when people say as, a, as an axiom, as a, as a standard saying, well, you never play for a tie. Well, there are times you play for a tie. Of course there are times you play for a tie. The difference, I think, in this one is you don't play for the tie 
when you're already up and have the chance to put the other team away. You don't yeah, play, they you don't play down to your level. You play up to your. Should have put their foot in the throat and tried to put them out of their misery at that point in time. It's not. It's not like the uh, the uh, the daily paper in this town, the Hamilton Spectator, had a little um, piece in last week how accurate. The field goal kicker is from outside 50 yards and outside 45 yards. Oh, yeah, he's great from outside 50. So he's... <laughs> it's the inside 50 yeah. that's a problem. So maybe they should have dropped back, fell down, <laughs> and tried to kick a 53 Had a really yard. long snap. Maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe the coach didn't have any confidence they were too close. But you're right. They, that was their opportunity to clean that thing up, and they didn't do it. And again, the coach would like a do-over. I mean... Uh, his explanation was he didn't think they could score a touchdown and get two points. Mm, surprise. Generally, you tell your players, we'll do the thinking for you. In that case, it didn't work out so well. So how much press, How much weight in sports should we put on coaches? How much glory should coaches get and how much blame should they get? Because it seems like, depending on who the coach is, there are some coaches that get praise no matter what. Bill Belichick gets and, and I think Bill Belichick's a good coach, but I, I don't know how much glory Bill Belichick should get relative to Tom Brady or anyone else. And if he loses, I don't know how much blame he should get. Well, I can tell you, coaches with great players are better coaches than coaches with bad players. Hockey players with great goalies tend to look really good. Yep. And that matters. So the Ticats had the horses. They had the ability to win the game. And they, now who knows, uh, you draw a scenario that's possible. They miss the field goal. They run it back for a touchdown. Now you look like a doofus. But I don't think so because you were trying to win the game. You were trying to put it out of reach. That was your plan. The one point means now they got to get a, a touchdown and a two-point conversion. The bad news is they did both. Well, again, I come back to my, you know, if you're going to be overthinking a sport, which seems to be what was happening here, you go back to the same thing. So let's say we miss this field goal, and so we're up by... Seven. Seven. They run it all the way back and score a touchdown. Are, is there even a remote chance that they're going to go for two-point conversion instead of the single? And even if you come to the conclusion that, yes, they would do that, even if you think Wally Buono, who has a long track record in this league, and I don't remember him doing that, but even if you say, yeah, you know what, they're going to run it back and go for a two-point convert and potentially lose the game there as opposed to tying it, if the guy runs it all the way back, we're still going to have 40 seconds or something to get to the 40-yard line to try and be able to kick a field goal ourselves because running it back is going to be one play. It's going to be gone. Yep. There's like there's so many parts in this well, that think, they overthought. I, I think Wally Buono, if he gets that touchdown from a media standpoint, because some of the guys in the media are just brutal to coaches, as you well know, and ask really tough questions as to why in God's creation would you ever think of doing that? So the easy answer for him is kick the single point and lose it in overtime versus not kicking the single point and not giving your chance club a chance to play in overtime. So that would be the lesser of two evils. Just take the single point and uh, take your chances in overtime. It's an interesting point you raise, and I'll tell you why. There is a guy who, and I, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He's a high school football coach from Alabama or Arkansas or somewhere like that. I've had him on the show before. And he is famous because he never punts. In high school football, and it's a big football state, 
He never punts. He plays four-down football all the time. doesn't matter what the circumstance is. He ne- the only time he punts is if they are killing the other team and he's doing it out of mercy to them so they don't keep running up the score. But as, as part of his strategy, we are playing four-down football. If we have it fourth and ten on our two-yard line, we're going for on fourth and ten. And I said to him, first of all, he says it works way more often than not. Because four downs, now you can get two and a half yards a time and you're good to go. And I said, why do other people not do this? If they've seen your record, and he's won like four straight state championships or something. <clears throat> I said, why do other guys not do this? He goes, very simple answer. If I am a football coach and I'm hired by someone and I want to keep my job, I would rather do the expected thing because then if I lose, I can at least go into my owner and I can say, we did it the way everybody does it and it didn't work out. Because if you do something different and it doesn't work, now you look like you're a, you're a wingnut because you you're a crazy man because you tried something that no one else does and there's a reason why no one else does it. If you just do what everyone else does and you're a sheep and you follow along, no one is going to lop your head off for something that doesn't go your way as a coach. So guys don't want to take a risk. Well, I'll tell you, uh, in my opinion... The biggest reason that the National Hockey League got rid of, rid of rid of clutching and grabbing is the left wing lock, the trap, and everything else. Because everybody, every coach in the National Hockey League was coaching not to lose their job and not to try and win hockey games because that worked. Because it worked, and now that they've opened it up, it's hard to play the trap because there's no center red line. It's far more wide open. It's a better brand of hockey. And now they've got to figure out how to put more energy in the game and how to make it more exciting and carve the ice down into smaller pieces. But it's so much faster than it was. And I think that's better. And lots of coaches coach not to, not to lose, which means you don't get fired. But so and that doesn't create for a lot of creativity. I think it's brilliant. I've wondered that before in the NFL. Like, these guys are so good. Why do you kick? You you should be able to get a first down every four tries. So if I'm if I'm June Jones and we'll go back to this game on the weekend, if I'm June Jones and I don't kick that for the fear that they're going to run the ball back and score a touchdown on the missed field goal, or I, because I, I want to avoid that, and now I'm Wally Buono, I'm switching sides. Now I'm Wally Buono, and you're down by one with seconds left, and you've got the ball, and you could either go for two or you can try and kick the extra point. What will get Wally Buono raked over the coals in his city and by his ownership? Which decision would get him in trouble? Or if he goes for the extra point and m- loses in overtime, does anyone criticize him for kicking the extra point? But if he goes for the two and they don't get to overtime, they could have won, they lost, he gets killed. So it, Back to my point about the, the media being all over him. Mean, he takes the safe way. You, everybody does. Everybody does. Everybody does, except that guy in Texas. Except that guy in Texas and 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 June Jones because the the right decision, and I still say this, the right the safe decision was kicking the single because it couldn't possibly blow up in your face except that it could and it did. And no, co- and to me, a coach should. I'm with you. What you said right off the bat, a coach, unless there's extenuating circumstances, should play aggressive like you want if you're in front. And you have a chance to really put the other team away. Don't think worst case scenario. 
think, how are we going to win this game? How do we make sure we win this game? And that's what he didn't do. And I don't think he'll do it again. Now, that said, he could do the same thing the next five situations that are all the same. And they could work. And it works out well. Yeah, it could. It's just when it doesn't work, you got to wear it. But I don't think that it's all second guessing. And the reason is because there was a lot of first guessing going on by people saying, what is he doing? This is not what... Yeah, he got murdered for it. You've got to go for it. You don't play to bring yourself down to the other team that you're beating. If you're ahead, and we started this show, this this hour, talking about Ben Johnson. If you're Ben Johnson and you've got a three-meter lead at the 90-meter mark, you don't slow down to allow the other guy and go, okay, if I were to trip at this point... What's going to happen to my lead? No, you pour it on to make sure you win by as much as possible. Tiger Woods, you don't say, I'm going to miss, I'm going to put a few in the bunkers here just to make it more interesting. He actually did. Wait, uh, not on purpose. No. Um, But I want to make it closer here. I want to make sure that, you know, I have a backup plan in case they make it close. And how am I going to do that? By making sure they're close. That's not how you do this. Not our premium athletes do it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don Robertson in studio, as he is every Monday at this time. You saw what happened with the Hamilton Bulldogs coach on Saturday. And I don't know if you saw it, but you heard what happened. You ever seen anything like this happen in, in person? Somebody uh, in sports, in a game, have a sudden medical emergency, not even necessarily connected to the game. Like he wasn't hit into the boards and suffered a broken shoulder or something. Like just collapse. Not not in anything I've been involved with of a serious nature. I mentioned the off-air, our coach, Kenny Mann, kind of went down in Leamington one night, but come up and looked like the Johnny Bauer exhibit and said, I'm all right, I'm all right, you know, just tough guy and going to carry on. I mean, he did ask me 15 minutes later who was winning 5-3, but it was, you know, shook it off and had some pizza and tea after the game. But from anything to that extent, um, and I referee a lot of hockey games. I don't remember being involved in anything like that where the coach collapses. Because um, I wonder what there this... was a kid in the KHL. Yes, I think that who had died a heart attack or heart arrhythmia. New York Rangers prospect was it? Yeah, yeah. and but there it... was and there was a kid for the Tucson Roadrunners who was the captain of their team who collapsed uh, a couple of years ago and his heart failed. They restarted it, but because of an infection, he had his leg amputated shortly after. He's done playing hockey. Uh, it, it does happen. and But not very often. Not very often. And I always wonder, and we're going to find out to a degree. So the, 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 the news is as positive right now, what we're hearing is as positive as it can be for Hamilton, for the Bulldogs. Dave Matzos, who's the head coach, collapsed behind the bench. He was in Barrie. They kept him in Barrie. They did tests. He was released from hospital today and is at home now with his family. So that's good. We don't know anything more than that. We Publicly, we still don't know what the cause of this was. I don't know if the doctors do or not. But I'm really wondering, I always with these, wonder how the players handle this kind of thing. When you saw, there was a guy, Yuri Fisher, who played for the Detroit Red Wings, who had a heart attack mm-hmm. and had to quit playing and he, he was in the NHL. The, these are traumatic moments to see this happen. Now, if the Bulldogs coach comes right back on Friday and goes, you know what? I had, I had a hypoglycemia and my blood sugar had dropped and I, you know, it's, it's easily fixable. That, that's, that's something. But if it's something else, I, I wonder how you deal with this. I think it's different for young athletes as well. I mean, these guys, these kids are basically all teenagers 
and uh, he'll have, they will all have tremendous respect for him and look up to him, almost like a father figure. So, you know, that's kind of what flashes through your mind. He's probably not old enough to be... 44. Yeah, but he's not... Yeah, I know, but he's not really old enough to be their father. Barely. But, but some of their fathers yeah. will be that age, and that's, I think, how they view it. And it happened right beside... You saw the panic in the players. Mm-hmm. First of all, they don't know how bad it is, and... And based on what I know, it it's it's it sure could have been a whole lot worse than it is. And the fact that he's home now speaks well. I mean, I hope they, and you know, they you want to find out why it happened. You don't want to just say, well, he seems fine now. I mean, obviously they'll get to the bottom yeah, of it. Yeah. And the Bulldogs are just such an outstanding organization. They'll make sure that everything is taken the right way. The thing I want to add, though, and the thing that generally pops into my mind when you ask me questions like that is when you're dealing with athletes, especially at this level and almost at all levels, the athletes are in pretty tip-top shape, which is probably why it seems so astonishing and you don't see much of it. Sometimes the coaches aren't in as good a shape. Matzos looks like he's in. Matzos is still in good shape. He looks like he'd still play for the real McCoys. Uh, Right? He's in pretty good shape. Yep. So that's a little disheartening. Um, but yeah, because you know, if honestly, like not not to be ridiculous, I'm not trying to be, but if you had a guy who weighed 300 pounds who was coaching and he dropped behind the bench, you would say, well, his health wasn't great to begin with. This is different. This is a this is a fit guy. Well, the late Pat Quinn, remember yeah. when he had troubles? They were playing Carolina and he was done for the year, and people were going, well, you know, you, you can kind of see it with with a combination of a guy that's maybe a, a bit heavy and a bit older. I'm describing myself. Here. <laughs> I'm not going on the bench anymore. It's it, to me. It was it was it's just different ver- though. With it's very he's in great shape. It's very frightening. Uh, I really hope that he's okay, but very frightening. And I do wonder how the young guys are going to deal with this, especially. And here's an interesting thing, especially we got to go to break, especially if and hoping he comes back. If he comes back, do they worry? Does it ever cross their mind? No, you know what he does? Again. He walks in and says, look, we, here was the issue. We've got it straightened out. Yep, we've got nothing to worry about. Or he wouldn't even be here. That'll clear their conscience. It'll get it off their minds because he doesn't want that. Nope. And he wants in good conscience to be able to say that. Look at it. I got checked out. Here's what it was, and here's how they fixed it. And we're just going to keep an eye on it. But they, they said, I got nothing to worry about, or I wouldn't be here, guys. Let's hope that's the case. I hope that we hear that by Friday or Saturday that that is the case and that he's okay and that they've figured it out what the problem is and that he is back and able to go full speed. And uh, it is. Uh, it was pretty yep. shocking, though. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.